open these mysterious readings of Advent. Open our hearts to what you have to say to us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The two scripture lessons we heard today sound an awful lot alike. Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Isaiah says, because the Lord has anointed me. Mary says, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Isaiah says, God will provide for those who mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes. Mary says, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Isaiah says, God will make an everlasting covenant with them. Mary says, God made the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Two passages of scripture written in response to situations 600 years apart. What are they trying to tell us? Reading them 2,000 years later, every single Advent. What are they trying to tell us about our preparations for Christmas? Let's go a slightly different direction, or maybe a more accessible direction, and start with another idea about preparations for Christmas. Last week I walked over to Arthur's on the square to grab lunch. I was on my own. I sat down at the bar and I ordered soup and a sandwich. I took out my phone to catch up on email while I awaited my order, but I had to put the phone away when I noticed the TV Christmas Vacation was on. For those of you who aren't familiar, this is a classic Chevy Chase comedy about good old Clark Griswold, husband and father hoping for the perfect family Christmas. He does not get it. His annoying brother-in-law shows up unexpectedly parking his RV on the front lawn. The immense light display Clark installs all around the house blows all the fuses and sets the cat on fire. The turkey is burned to a crisp, and all of this goes on while Clark waits in vain for the arrival of his anticipated holiday bonus check. Christmas is not what Clark Griswold thought it would be. And that is why we find the movie funny again and again and again, because many of us have the same problem. We brood and stress ourselves out looking for the perfect gifts to give. We gather with family and we pray that everyone will get along. We hope to cook the perfect meal. And often we end up disappointed. Because none of us mere mortals can measure up to the bar that has been set by Christmas songs and favorite old movies not to mention the advertisements. I wonder if you've ever noticed that at Christmas time, 
so many of our surroundings change. We decorate our houses and churches and town squares. We change the music we listen to. We prepare for all manner of special meals and gatherings. Even the coffee cups and the shopping bags are different. Have you ever noticed the irony that in the midst of all of this change, we do not change? We ourselves are the same less-than-perfect people we have been all year long. And that's not to say that we're such bad folks in the first place. I know most of you, and I think you're a great group. The problem is that at Christmas time, all of the surroundings and with them, our expectations change. Now with that slightly more accessible lead up, let's jump back to where I started. Because I'm wondering, if you're struggling with some aspect of Christmas that you wish you could get just right, I wonder if there's any wisdom to be found in ancient words from Isaiah and Mary, these mysterious words like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and my soul magnifies the Lord. Of what use to us are these words? Is there a connection between their lives and ours? I believe perhaps there, there is, and that the connection is about expectations. We read Isaiah chapter 61, as we did this morning, almost every year during Advent. It is a story of people who find themselves struggling in the face of unreasonable expectations. The passage comes from a time you might have heard of in the 7th century before the birth of Christ. At this time, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the city was sacked, and the people had to go into exile in Babylon. It was not a brief exile. It lasts a long time, two to three generations. And it is the darkest period in the history of Israel. The Bible is full of poetry in which the Israelites mourn the loss of Jerusalem, Zion, the promised land, and they yearn for the chance to one day return. Psalm 137 is an example of this, with the words, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. These people, these Israelites, living exiled from their home for such a long time, they probably developed a memory of Jerusalem that was not entirely reliable. It was partially based on the memories of their parents and grandparents. Portrayals arising out of grief and loss. No doubt these people remembered Jerusalem through rose-colored glasses and told their children about it that way. And meanwhile, during the course of the exile, things go way downhill back in Jerusalem. 
For not only did the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem when the exile began, they took into exile all the means of economic production in Jerusalem, and the city falls into neglect and disarray during these two generations. And all of that is to say that by the time that the Persian Empire takes over Babylon and the Israelites are allowed to return home, they return to find the glorious city their parents and grandparents told them about. And it is a city in ruins. And as they walked back through the broken down gates of glorious old Jerusalem, the exiles must have said to themselves, how will we ever build this up again? It's a dramatic comparison to our own lives, but still a true one. In any situation where the expectations are artificially high, we're bound to be discouraged by the task that is before us. And while that may be trivial when it comes to cooking the perfect Christmas turkey, it's more important when it comes to the serious imperfections of Christmas. Estranged family members. The grief of Christmas without a deceased spouse, parent, or child. The harsh reality that behind every toy and food drive is a huge number of families who do not have enough. Many folks in our culture never expect Christmas to be perfect in the first place. Life is hard enough that the the songs and the advertisements are not fooling them. Can any of us, should any of us, expect to have the perfect Christmas in the face of these cruel realities? And how can we help but say as those Israelites did walking back into Jerusalem, how... Can we ever fix this? How can we make it as perfect as it's supposed to be? What might might, uh, Mary say? Does her story provide us with any wisdom? We read today's poetic gospel lesson. It's known as the Magnificat. Mary's poem that declares, My soul magnifies the Lord. And we're tempted to sentimentalize Mary's story. But Mary was a poor, unwed young woman who suddenly discovers herself pregnant. She would have been frightened and incredibly vulnerable to abandonment. And that is clear from her own words of deep gratitude when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, for God has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. God, Mary says, God has taken notice of me in the midst of all of this. And she goes on to say, Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Mary knows herself to be blessed, not because she is the most likely person to give birth to the Savior of the world, not because she is up to the task, 
But because she knows she is such an unlikely candidate, and yet for some reason God has taken notice of her, does God take notice of us when we struggle? Does God take notice of the ones in the world who struggle the most? When you look back at the language of the Isaiah passage, you realize that the same idea is going on there. Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. God has sent me. Here's what Isaiah and Mary have in common. Neither of them are doing it on their own, and they know it. They're both amazed at what God is doing through their lives. And this is where the adjustment to our expectations comes in. When I began today with that cliche of a story about Clark Griswold, perhaps you thought this sermon might be about lowering your expectations of the perfect Christmas. Perhaps when I read some of Isaiah and Mary's declarations, you thought I was going to tell you to stop worrying about your decorations and get out and help the poor. These may not be bad suggestions. They're probably good ones. But neither one holds a candle to the truth of Christmas. The change in expectations that is most needed is far more radical than either one of those ideas. It's about coming to terms with the fact that what happens at Christmas is not up to you at all. What happens at Christmas is not up to you at all. For Isaiah and Mary, their amazement has nothing to do with accomplishing the impossible task God has placed before them. It has everything to do with receiving the gift God has given them. Christmas is not meant to change us into different people. It's meant to remind us of who we've been all along. God's image for you this time of year, God's image for you is not that of the perfect dinner host, the best gift giver ever, the son or daughter who has no problems, not even the tireless volunteer. No, you were created in God's image to receive the gift of grace and to share it with others. to find that image God intends for us to see in the Christmas story. Don't look to songs or movies or ads. The image we want is found when we read the words of Isaiah and Mary and we follow them to the manger where she is headed. For there we find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger, the Savior of the world. He is not in a hurry. He is not producing anything. He is not planning anything. He is not solving anything. 
Yes, he has work of healing and reconciling to do, but that will come much later. First, he must learn what we all must remember when we gaze upon him, that we were created out of love. And whatever we have to give to the world arises not out of our own efforts, but as a response to that love. It comes from remembering the goodness out of which God has made us. At Christmas, we're called to receive God's love for us each year all over again so that we can continue to share it. Our ministry that makes God's world a better place arises out of gratitude for what Christ has done first and a desire to be swept up in his life of healing. We've talked a lot about Jerusalem in this sermon and last week's as well. But before Jesus ever walks the difficult road to Jerusalem, we meet him in a smaller and simpler town called Bethlehem. In this season where we're called to open our less than perfect lives to the love of God, at Bethlehem we can see it clearly. God's love revealed to us. And the song we sing about Bethlehem has no unreasonable expectations of perfect Christmases. The song we sing of Bethlehem is about a world transformed not by decorations, but by the love of Christ, who comes to be with us just as we are. Do you remember the words? O little town of Bethlehem, in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel.